All right. It's good to see you all. Let's go ahead and start finding our spots, finding our places. Um, I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm going to ask if you would turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, I am stepping away from our 2 Kings uh, passage uh, for a little bit, probably till the beginning of the year. We have Thanksgiving and Christmas coming up, but let me just be honest. I didn't realize how much study it's taking <laughs> to, to, to do this and do it right. Um, I am hours and hours and hours in, and, and I finally just threw my hands up going, okay, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do here. And uh, I'm, I'm handwriting out 2 Timothy just in my own time with the Lord, and, and I came across this passage, and something I've been wanting to do, thank you, Tay, something I've been wanting to do um, for a while is address some popular passages in the Bible that are, I think, often misquoted, misapplied, misused. And uh, one of those is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And so um, what I'm wanting to do, just so you guys know, and maybe you can do some, some pre-homework. So after this is finished and we get through the holidays and all that, we're going to launch back up into... Second Kings, and the reason we're hitting pause there is the first half of the Second Kings deals with really the ministry of Elisha, dealing with all these different kings. There's a prophet amongst the people, and then after that, it shifts gears to where the prophets now are those who are doing the writing, and you don't get a whole lot of the individual lives of the prophets. It's just an interesting shift, right? And so if you're reading your Bible and you come to First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you're like, wait, didn't I just read that? The answer is yes. You did just read that. First and Second Chronicles is a kind of a repeat of First Samuel through Second Kings. And so we're not going to bust through all of those chapters. However, then you get into your prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and all the, all the minor prophets. Well, those those guys wrote at a certain time at different times of the kings. And so what I'm trying to do is, is marry those together, right? I'm trying to marry second kings and the prophets together. That's a lot of work. And I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I was not prepared. And uh, as I'm just freaking out this week, going, Lord, you need to show up. I believe he showed up. And uh, so this is where we're going to head for the foreseeable future. And then we'll hit right back. So you can be reading ahead, Second Kings and all the prophets and do all the meshing yourself. And we'll have some fun. We'll get back together with that. Um, so I'm handwriting out Second Timothy. And I get to chapter 3. And, and I get to this verse 12, which is an often quoted passage of scripture. Can I just, Kale, can I have you pull that up? Second Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. You ever heard that verse before? You ever said that verse? You ever quoted that verse? Listen, it just rolls off of some people's tongues. They love to quote this verse, and, and oftentimes when I hear it, it's misused and often misapplied. And, and so I thought, okay, Lord, and I, I just sat back and I feel like God just gave me maybe two messages here. We'll, we'll just see um, on, on this passage. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so my message title for today is, uh, you, you live in that godly life? Because he says, all that will live godly. So the question on the table then is, are you living that godly life? Right? Because we can't claim persecution from the world without living the godly life. That's just not possible. Absolutely not possible. And so this verse is often misquoted. It's misused. It's misunderstood. It's misapplied, taken way out of context, even robbed from the rest of the text. And what's really happening when you read this verse is that Paul is making a conclusion. He's making a conclusion based on the comparisons that he makes between a worldly life and a, and a godly life. That's really what's happening. All right, so you're in 2 Timothy. We're going to get there, right? We'll get there. But now I need you to put your neighbor's hand there and go to Acts chapter 14. Go to Acts chapter 14. 
So if you remember the last two weeks um, in our messages in, in Kings, we've talked about that God has a faithful remnant. We've talked about that. Y'all with me on that? We've talked about a faithful remnant. Are you a faithful, faithful remnant? And the second thing is, man, it's the faithful remnant that have really cool stories. And man, we just spent some time talking about the cool stories of Elisha and talked about some of the cool stories here within the church. And man, I had a page just full of people that I wanted to tell you guys the stories and I couldn't get it done because we were out of time. But man, when you're reading in Acts chapter 14, really the whole book of Acts, but especially this passage here, I believe you've got a faithful remnant in the Apostle Paul, who's a picture of the 144,000. And yet here he is, he's, he's a faithful remnant serving the Lord, he and Barnabas side by side. And this is just a crazy story. And the reason we're going to look at this story, because it ties perfectly with 2 Timothy chapter 3, okay? This, they, all, they go hand in hand. You can't have 2 Timothy 3.12 without Acts 14. You have to have them side by side. All right, Acts 14, verse 1. And it came to pass in, in Iconium that they, that's Paul and Barnabas, they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake, that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, believed. So they're, they're preaching Jesus in a Jewish synagogue. People are believing, not just Jews, but also the Gentiles, the Greeks. Verse 2, but... The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren. Long time, therefore, abode they speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony of the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. The part held with the Jews and, the, and, and part with the apostles. And when there was an assault made both that of the Gentiles and also the Jews with the rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. They were aware of it and fled unto, pay attention, Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and unto the region that lieth round about. And there they preached the gospel. Now, just something I want you to get here is that Paul and Barnabas show up. They show up in a new town. They find a synagogue where there's people actually having spiritual conversations. They at least have an understanding that the Bible is the word of God. They take the Old Testament and they begin to just preach Jesus and People get saved, man. And what's crazy, the moment people start getting saved, now the community starts to be affected. In fact, there's a verse in there. We just read it. It says the, half the city goes with the Jews and half the city goes with the apostles. And so when the gospel is properly preached in a community, you see that it affects everybody. Everybody has to, you have to make a stand. You have to do something with this. All right, so now they're getting upset and they, they're threatening to stone them, Right? I've told the story about me and my friends growing up. We had a game called Throw the Rock Game, right? I've shared that story with you, with, with you before. How long can you stand there? And will you stand there if a rock's thrown at you? And you're a pansy if you move, right? That's how we played. We played that game. Well, those are little stones. These are big stones thrown at you over and over and over again until you died. And that's what they're threatening to do. And so they, they tuck tail and they, they run, they leave, but they go to this next town, Lystra and Derby. They're kind of side-by-side communities. And it says, then there they preach the gospel. All right, so now people are getting saved in Lystra and Derby. All right, now let's skip forward just a little bit. Go to verse 19. Verse 19. So they're preaching the gospel there. Well, word gets out that they're preaching Jesus there. In verse 19, it says, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people and having, look at, pay attention, this is crazy, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel, holy cow, did you just see that? So here's this dude, Barnabas and Paul, they show up in this new town, they're preaching Jesus, and all of a sudden, people from the next town over come over, they stir up everybody, and they get him mad, and they stone him almost to the point where he's either dead or he resurrects from the dead. One of those, either he's almost dead or he resurrects from the dead. All right, One of those two things. They drag him out of the city thinking he's dead, all the disciples are standing around him, and he gets up. Now, can you imagine how disgusting he would have looked? Been pretty gnarly, would you agree with that? You've just been stoned to death. Skin pulling off your, off your scalp, 
right? Broken, I don't know. He'd been a mess. And he'd get bloody and dirty and just gross. And he gets up and he goes back in the same town he just got drug out of. And then it says the next day, doesn't it? It says the next day. It says, um, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. And it says, and when they had preached the gospel to that city, now, can you imagine you're just kicking it in Derby and some dude starts walking in who's got like fresh wounds all over him, mud caked inside of his wounds, and he starts preaching Jesus? That's a little, that'd mess you up, wouldn't it? That'd mess me up. And he shows up and they're preaching Jesus. It says, so they go and preach the gospel of that city and had taught many. They, look at this, they returned unto Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. They returned right back to where it got bad, man. And you know what they do? You know what their message is? Here's the message, verse 22. Confirming the souls of the disciples. What's a disciple? A learner, someone who's going to imitate and follow Christ with their life. That is what a true disciple is. And so they come back to the disciples, and you know what their message is to them? Exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. That man, listen, that's, it's easy to say that, isn't it? It's easy to say, hey, man, you're going you're gonna to follow the Lord. You're going to serve Jesus. It's going to impact your life. And not just, it's not just going to impact your life. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to go through some tribulations. It's, it's easy to say that. It's easy for some dude in a suit to be rocking that and saying stuff, stuff like that. Amen, amen, pastor. But it means something different. When there's somebody standing there bearing in their body the marks of the Lord Jesus. It means something different when there's somebody who's standing before you bleeding. Somebody who stands before you who's gone through some hard times. With somebody with a store because they're a faithful remnant. And when they say, hey, it, this is what it's going to take to follow the Lord. Are you in or are you out? Sorry. I love this story. Because when we some of us, we might miss this because there's a young man in the audience. There's a young man who's witnessed all of this. He's seen all of this. And so Paul and Barnabas, they go off and they go back. They go back into Antioch and they, they teach and they do their thing. But when you get to the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16, you have Silas and Paul have not joined hands and they're getting ready to go on another journey to go and check on the churches and see how they're doing. So there's some time that passes between what we just read here in chapter 14 and what we're getting ready to read in chapter 16. So go to chapter 16 in verse 1. Chapter 16 in verse 1. Then came he to Derby. He's been here before. Been here before. The last time he was in this area, he was a bloody, stinking mess. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. And I love this. And behold, a certain, what's the word? Disciple was there, named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewish and believed, but his father was a Greek. So he's a half-breed, right? He's half-Jewish half Gentile, which makes him a Gentile, but now he's saved, so now he's in, the th- he's in the third group of category. He's part of the body of Christ, right? There's only three people groups on the planet, Jew, Gentile, and the church. He's now a member of the church, and the Bible calls him a disciple. Well, he's well-reported of in numerous towns and numerous churches, which is well-reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. Sound familiar? So when Paul is doing all this stuff in chapter 14, there's a young man named Timothy taking it all in. And when Paul shows back in into town with bloody and bruised and just disgusting and saying, hey, we through much tribulation must enter the kingdom of God, there's a young man in the audience who believed it. Said, that's the kind of Christianity I want. That's what I want. I want some of that. And so Paul, if you go back to the end of chapter 15, you'll find that, that Paul is not into taking quitters in the ministry because there's a guy, a young man named John Mark who thought ministry was kind of hard in chapter 15, so he quits, or sorry, in chapter 13, he quits. And in chapter 15, he wants to go back on another trip, and, and, and Paul's like, listen, 
I need those who are going to endure tribulation, and you've shown yourself that you can't endure tribulation, therefore you're disqualified from this trip. You can't go on this missionary trip. Usually we're excited if somebody wants to go on a missionary trip. Hey, why don't you come? And Paul's like, no, you're disqualified because you quit the last time, and I don't need people who are going to be quitting. Now, that, that, that sends John Mark on a different trajectory of his life, and he ends up getting discipled by Peter, and he gets restored to Paul later in life. Praise the Lord. Now, he grabs another guy named Silas, and he shows up into this town, and everybody's like, hey, did you see this guy, young Timothy? I think Paul's met Timothy before. Timothy would have met Paul before. There's some time that transpires, and everybody's like, hey, there's something different about this kid. And they go to a different town. They go, hey, did you hear about that young man named Timothy? There's something different about that guy. He serves the Lord with everything he's got. Why? Because he's a disciple. He's a true disciple of the Lord. So it says this. Now, how do we know that he's gangster? Because, listen, I think Timothy's gangster. You know what I love about Timothy? He's timid in his ministry. He's timid as as he pastors. You can read about that in 1 and 2 Timothy. And yet there's something different about him because it says in verse 2, chapter 16, verse 2, it says, which was well reported of by the brethren that were Lystra and Iconium, him would Paul have to go forth with him and took and, what's the next phrase? Circumcised him. Oh, by the way, listen, sometimes when we go on mission trips, hey, it might require you to wear something different. Hey, ladies, you can't wear pants. You're going to have to wear a dress because the culture says this is how you're going to have to do it. Okay, so we buy dresses and we wear them. I mean, if you tell me I have to wear a dress, I'm going to wear a dress. If that's what it means, right? But hey, hey, dude, we can't have long hair on this trip. You're going to have to cut it off. That's a small sacrifice to pay. Paul's like, hey, you want to come with me? Here's what it's going to take. Snippy snip. And he does it. He does it. Why? Because everybody knows he's half Jewish and half Greek. And the Jews are not going to have anything to do with this young man if he's not circumcised. Now, the question I've always, who's checking that out? That's weird. Right? That's, always, that's just weird to me. Strange. But he does. And so he gets circumcised. They have to wait for him to heal up, of course. He says, because the Jews which were in those quarters, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went, man, I love that. As they went. All right. Now, lose your spot. I'm coming to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Because what you read in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verse 12 Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That verse right there, that phrase, is Paul's commentary on everything you just read between chapter 14 and 16. That's Paul's conclusion. In one sentence is everything that he just went through. Well, how do I prove that? Because verse 11 exists. Verse 11, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That is his commentary on what he just went through. That's all you got to say? No, he has a few other things to say. But that verse really sums up everything that he went through in chapter 14. In chapter 15 and chapter 16, this sums up everything that Paul expected Timothy to understand. Hey, Tim, you understand what we're getting ready to do? We're getting ready to go to ministry. You saw what I went through the last time I was in town. Are you signing up for that? Because if you're going to live godly, you shall suffer persecution. You shall. All right. So, Let's take this a step further because I just want to hang out here in just this verse, just for a moment. Let me give you a few conclusions about a godly life. A few conclusions about a godly life. And the first one is this. Every believer that lives godly should expect persecution. It should be an expectation. Now here's what people tend to do. They go through a difficult time or somebody flips them off, right? Or whatever it might be. Yeah, you know, that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. They love to quote that verse. Uh, that doesn't apply to that situation. Somebody flips you off. That's, that's the application you got out of that verse. Or we go through some difficult times and 
We just assume that we can apply this verse to it. No, every believer that lives godly should expect persecution. I'm just going to tell you right now. That's, that is what scares a lot of people off from truly following the Lord. Right there. Truth? That right there. Well, listen, I'm happy to go to church, and I'm happy to f- sing a few songs. I'm even happy to have a little Bible study. But when it comes time to actually following the Lord with my life, the expectation is that people aren't going to like it. And so we live just under the radar so we don't receive any backlash. That right there. So the natural expectation is, hey, if you're going to do this, you should expect persecution. That's the first thing. The second thing is that every believer, and I know this is bad grammatic, right? This is bad, this is bad English, so don't, don't beat me up over this, but every believer is not living a godly life. We, we can get that because he says, yay, and all that will live godly, and implying that not everybody's doing that. Does that make sense? That's what he's implying. Every believer is not living a godly life. And so there's a host of people now, just stop, because many who quote this verse assume that they are living a godly life, especially when the difficult times come, especially when they go through any kind of adversity. And a lot of times, the reality is, the reason they're going through a difficult time, because they made a really bad decision in their life. Right? We make bad decisions. I make bad decisions. And I suffer the consequences of those poor decisions. And what happens? Pain. Anxiety. Difficult moments. And then what happens? Oh, this must be because I'm a Christian. Satan hates me. This... Slow your roll. <laughs> Slow your roll. It might be because you're stupid. <laughs> right? Can we just be honest? It just might be because you're stupid. You did something stupid. We try to make sure everybody else gets the blame but ourselves. And the consequences of foolish decisions give us pain. That is not the time and place to quote this verse. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The reality is, here's the reality. Most Christians live somewhere between verse 12 and verses 1, 1 to 9. They live somewhere between these two extremes. And I've, I've, I've made mention this verse 12 is often ripped out of its context. We've got to read it in its context. Okay? So let's go to verse 1. Let's get the context. This know also that in the last days, perilous times, what's the next word? Shall come. They shall come. Now, just hit pause just for a moment. I, I, wanna, I told you I had bad grammar just a moment ago. I want to I draw your attention to a couple things grammatically here. Go back to chapter, look at verse 12 again. Yea, and all that, what's the next word? Will live godly in Christ Jesus. What's the next word? Shall. Two different words, two different meanings. Will is an act of your will. Will is something that is guaranteed to happen. Shall is you just open that up. There's a possibility. It's a likelihood. There, this should happen. So we think of it this way. Would or should is, the op- is, is a part of the same word as will and shall. Right? So he says, in verse 1, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. In other words, in some areas, it's going to be worse than others. Some cultures, it's going to be worse than others. In some areas, it's going to be more pronounced than others. But there shall come. Because we all live in perilous times, especially in the last days. And here's what we know, verse 2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And here's how it's fleshed out. They're covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, 
without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as Janies and, and Jambres withstood Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall perceive no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. Wow, that's a lot. So when he's saying in verse 12, gain all that will live godly in Christ Jesus is put in position over what he just gave you in the backdrop of verses 1 to 9. That is what society is becoming. Now, I think in every day and age, all of that is true. But it gets worse and worse and worse, doesn't it? So if I could sum up that whole mess, because there's a lot going on there. Notice it says that without natural affection. Why? Because they're lovers of themselves. Well, what does that mean? There's no love. You ever been around, just have you noticed society today? Like people used to be like naturally courteous, naturally loving, naturally affectionate. Not anymore. Like this, it's just like not even a natural thing now. It's I'm going to get mine and Forget you. If you don't believe me, go try out Black Friday and see how that works out for you. <laughs> I'm going to get mine. I don't care about you anymore. Right? You, you name it. Why don't you shut off power here for a week and see how bad it gets. Just, man, we live in a world where love is not a thing anymore. Why? Because we love ourselves. Now, what he's, he's not necessarily even talking about believers here. He's talking about the lost world. He's giving you a picture of what ungodly living looks like. Does your life mimic that? Or we're getting ready to read here in just a few moments. But So, no love is happening here. No natural affection. Putting myself above everybody else. But notice this. It says... In verse 4, their lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. They resist the truth. In other words, there's no God for them either. Oh, they're spiritual. Man, you can talk to a lot of spiritual people out there. They're spiritual. Oh, you just don't understand. I, I, I don't go to church. Listen, I'm not asking you to go to church. I'm asking you to come to Christ and know him, follow him with your life. That's what I'm asking you to do. Well, I'm, I'm spiritual. Come on now. That's the world we live in, man. They're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, there's no truth either. The knowledge of the truth, well, who's the truth? His name is Jesus, John 14, verse 6. I am the truth. You try to find truth outside of Christ? That ain't true, man. You don't understand. You don't understand. It's, there's some validity to it. Okay but it's extra biblical, therefore it's not right. Can I get an amen? Then yet, here we are, this is where we are, ever learning, verse 7, and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. We have more information available to us now than ever before. And so they take these false doctrines, and what do they do? They creep into houses, and what's their goal? It's to deceive. Well, how do they do that? Through your TV, through your cell phone, through your internet, through you, you name it. They don't have to creep in. You let them in. That's how it works, man. That's the world that we live in. It's right there. But then you take it a step further. And Paul says, well, look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be made, shall be manifest unto all men as theirs also was. In other words, they have no future. No future. Now, let me just hit pause just for a moment. You come across somebody who has no love because they have no idea who God is. 
they have access to no truth, and they end up in a spot where they have no future, you don't want to run into people like that. There are dead men walking. They are dead as ice on the inside. Nothing affects them. Their conscience is seared with a hot iron. You don't want to interact with people like that. And that's what we're on a collision course with. That's a society that's coming. You think, well, I'm already there. You ain't seen nothing yet. Bump, bump, right? You ain't seen nothing yet. It's coming. It's going to get worse. Now, I would say, we were talking, I was talking with somebody about this Wednesday night. I don't remember who. What the early church went through is what we are going to go through in the last days. That day's coming. Was it you guys? We were talking about that? That's exactly what it's going to be. So you want to know what it's going to be like in the last days? Go check out what the early church went through. And we'll find out who's really serving the Lord or not. Because those days are coming. Are you a faithful remnant? Will you still be serving the Lord? Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Be careful when we quote that verse. Because that means something. So he's just given us an illustration of verses 1 to 9. This is what the world we're getting ready to live. The world, the world we live in just get, waxes worse and worse. It just gets worse and worse. People tend to hide it, but now it's just like it's out there and it's celebrated. Interesting. Verse 10. But thou hast fully known. Oh, I love that. All this is true. In the last days, this and this and this and this and this and this and this. All, it, just gets, it just gets worse. It can't get any worse. Oh, it just got worse. It can't, oh, it just got worse. And then you get to verse 10. But thou, and he's writing to Timothy, he says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, and purpose, and faith, and long-suffering, charity, and patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came into me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, but out of them all the Lord delivered me, yea, and all that will live, what's the word? Godly. He just described to you what a godly life looks like in verses 10 and 11. That is what it looks like to live Godly. So next point I have for you then is that every believer should be able to identify what a godly life looks like. You should be able to identify what a godly life looks like. Well, why do I say that? Because apparently the lost world can. Because once they see a godly life, they persecute it. If the lost world can identify what a godly life looks like, you and I ought to. And that's very convicting for me. So, if you are into taking notes and you look on your page, there's a lot of blanks. And I got a lot of notes left. Y'all ready? Let's buckle up, buttercup. We're going to fly. Why? Because you can do the work yourself. You should be studying these things out. A godly life should be evident in your doctrine. A godly life should be evident in your doctrine. Let me have Kale pull up Titus 1 verse 9. Check this out. Holding fast the faithful word as he'd been taught that he may by able that he may be able by sound doctrine, not just any doctrine, but by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. So leave that up just for a moment because this is interesting. When he says to Timothy in verse 10, that thou hast fully known my doctrine, how is that possible? Because Paul and Timothy shared life together, man. 
They walk side by side together. A godly life is not lived alone. It is not lived alone. It's done in tandem with others who are beside you. And Paul's like, hey, you know my doctrine. Why does, why does Timothy know Paul's doctrine? Because Paul talked a lot about his doctrine. This is stuff that came out of his mouth. That he was able to exhort and convince the gainsayers. He's sitting on the side listening to everything Paul is saying. He says, oh, that's the Bible. That is sound Bible doctrine. So my question to you then is, what do people expect to hear from you? When they begin to have a conversation with you, when you begin to, to talk, what do they expect is getting ready to come out of your mouth? What is your doctrine? Is it stats from your, from your favorite sports team? Is it from your TV shows? If they pulled up your social media and looked at your Instagram and your TikTok and your Facebook and your Snap and your this and your that, what do they expect to see? How far do you have to scroll down to even see one mention of Christ? How far do you have to scroll down to have any conversation about giving God the glory for anything? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so whatever it is that you proclaim on the daily as you have conversation, that is your doctrine. That is your doctrine. What comes out your mouth? But notice according to this verse, when you have sound doctrine, what does it cause you to do? It causes you to hold on to the faithful words of God. It causes you to hold on to the Bible. Why? Because that's where sound doctrine is found. It's not found outside of this book. It's found right here. So is your doctrine biblically sound? Listen, you guys can fill these blanks in because they're just taken right from verse 10 and verse 11, right? The next blank I have for you is your manner of life. A godly life should be evident in your manner of life. Let me pull up Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, in all things, look at this, showing your thyself a pattern of good works, your manner of life, the way you carry yourself. Look at verse 8. Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. In other words, when you are walking in sound doctrine, your manner of life is different and people are watching and they're paying attention to you. They have no evil thing to say about you. Can you say this? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be ye, therefore, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. I mean, that's a bold statement, isn't it? Is that not bold to come up to say, just come up to, hey, Josh, hey, I want you to, to follow me. Because I'm following Christ, and apparently you aren't, and so you follow me as I follow Christ. That's a bold statement, isn't it? I mean, we, we quote that one all the time, but that's pretty bold. And Paul is saying, hey, Timothy, you know my doctrine. You know my manner of life. What's your manner of life? It's the way you carry yourself. Not the way that you present yourself. Big difference. Big difference. Your manner of life. The way you carry yourself, the decisions you make every single day, your daily life, the, your daily disposition, what is your manner? In fact, you can find some really cool passages like Acts chapter 17, and Paul, as his manner was, went into this, and Jesus, as his custom was, did this. Why? Because people recognized there was something different. That's just how that person lives his life. That's just how that person lives her life. What's your weekly schedule look like? What are you planning to do this afternoon? I hope there's a nap involved, right? I used to feel guilty about that. Not so much anymore because I'm that old. That's how old I am. Listen, don't feel guilty about that. Listen, I'm not talking about don't enjoy your life. Don't enjoy some things. Is your manner of life to just wake up, go to work, Come home, fret about your bills, maybe hit Walmart. Don't misquote the Bible. That's not tribulation. That's Walmart. And then you're, then you're going to come home and you're going to look at your phone all night. Might say hey to your kids and then you're going to do it all again tomorrow. Is that your manner of life? There's got to be something more to that. Got to be something more to that. How about the next one? Your purpose. 
that was known my doctrine and, and manner of life and, and purpose. What drives you every single day? And I think right here is where a lot of us, we get off like, hey, I know my Bible. I'm, I'm learning my Bible. Let me just say this. You can't have your doctrine if you're not in the word of God. You got to be knowing your Bible, man. Get discipled. Study the word of God. What's your doctrine on eternal security? What's your doctrine on the authority of the word of God? What's your doctrine on New Testament giving? What's your, what's your doctrine on all these? You ought to be able to just lay it out. You should, that echoed. You ought to be just leaving that out. Why? Because it'll change the manner of your life, and that will drive your purpose. It will drive your purpose. What drives you every day? Is it dollar bills? Do you wake up every day hoping that she texted? Hoping that he's going to call? Checking out the daily stat line? I mean, what is it? What drives you? What is your purpose? What, what is your ministry? Because that is your purpose. Where you are plugged in. Is it children's ministry? Make that your purpose, man. Are you discipling somebody? Make that your purpose. Well, so you might say, hey, well, Tony, I don't have any purpose. Then let me give you mine. Steal mine. Use it until God gives you one for yourself. So give me, let me give you Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29 says, Whom we preach, that's Jesus, whom we preach, warning every man... Teaching every man in all wisdom why that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That is what keeps me up every single night, man. That keeps me up. Because my responsibility is to give you the goods so that you can get the goods and get in, the, get in this book yourself. Because I know that you have a judgment seat of Christ coming. I know that Bert has a judgment seat of Christ. If he's called me pastor, then my job is to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, fully equipped. Man, that's why I put the hours in. That's why I put the study in. That's what, that's what drives me because that day's coming. Verse 29, look at this. Where do I also labor? Striving. Your purpose, that's what gets you up. Right there. Why are you laboring? What are you striving according to? That's your purpose. Is it biblical? Is it right? What drives you? What's your purpose? Okay, this is mine, but here's the other side of it. The other coin is, the other side of the coin is Colossians 4.17. You guys know this. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received the Lord, that thou fulfill it, man. You say, yeah, Tony, I don't have a purpose. And steal that one. And rock that until God gives you a new one. What is your purpose? Because Paul says, hey, Tim, you know my purpose. You know my doctrine. You know my inner life. You know my purpose. How about the next one? Faith. A godly life should be evident in your faith. Is your faith growing? Well, Tony, I just feel like I'm kind of wavering in my faith. I feel like I'm, I'm struggling in my faith. I just don't know. Okay, well, listen to this. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. So then faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Isn't it interesting? When you put the word of God down, you no longer want to follow the Lord. Isn't that interesting? Or we want to be in the Bible, but we, want, we don't want the word of God to be in us. Or your faith grows as you spend time in the word of God. And as the word of God gets inside of you. So, question is, does your life reflect that you know that what God said is going to come to pass? Do you live a life of faith? Because that's what it means. You know what the Bible says, and you believe that everything in that book is going to come to pass. That's a life of faith. Well, how do we know that? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please him. It's not possible to please God without faith. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That is a godly life. Or so what we just talked about, those few things, your doctrine, your manner of life, your purpose, your, your faith, your long suffering, sorry, and your, and your faith, that deals with your relationship with God. And this next one begin to deal with my relationship with others. Here's the next one, long suffering. A godly life should be evident in your long suffering. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. 
with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity in the spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, are you willing to suffer long? That's what long suffering means. You just inverted the word. Yes, I know, but that defined the word. What does long suffering mean? It means to suffer long. And you know what I call them? I call them extra grace people. You know people like that? I know what you're thinking. Tony, you are one of those people. Okay. But sometimes you just come across people that just require a little bit of extra grace. You know what I'm saying? You're like, I love you because Jesus loves you, and that's about it. You know what I mean? Listen, you don't get along with everybody. You don't just jive with everybody. But are they a member of the body of Christ? Are they part of this church? Are they, are they a member of the church in general? Long-suffering. You're willing to suffer long. Why? Because they're that important. They're worth being right with. Why? Because unity is that important. You're willing to forbear one another and to forgive um, one another. Let me put it this way. Are you willing to forgive and forbear and be long-suffering to this person, knowing that when you get through whatever it is you're going through, they're going to do it again? And they're going to rub your eye again? The, your willingness to do that and your ability to do that is proof of a godly life. You know why? Because God does that with you. And you start to see people the way that God does. Long-suffering. But the next one is charity. It ought to be evident in your charity. Now, what is charity? Because love and charity, they're both in the Bible. And God uses them. But they're not necessarily interchangeable. What is charity? Well, charity is love perfected in you. It's love with action, right? But it's not, it's not just love with action. It's love being perfected in you. Why? Because it puts others first in every circumstance, in every situation. Others first. Look past your own nose and see somebody else. That is charity. When you think of everybody else first. Let me give you Bible for that. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. It's the glue that holds your perfectness together. It's, it's the, what holds you all together. It's charity. Let me remind you, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. Charity suffereth long. That's what it does. It's kind. It envieth not. Vaunted not itself. All that stuff. What does it mean? It puts others first. Let me give you verse 8. Look what it says in verse 8. Charity never faileth. Meaning what? You can't go wrong. Right? Like tails never fails. Charity never fails, man. You are never going to go wrong if you exert charity. It's never wrong to apply, and it's never, I got news for you, Think about the people in your life who you know have been charitable toward you. In other words, they're putting you first with no expectation of anything in return. And when somebody has demonstrated charity to you, you remember it, don't you? Those are the things you remember about the people. We were talking about Jodine Mangus this morning. For those of you who don't know Jodine, or did not have the opportunity to know Jodine, you missed out on gold right there. That woman was amazing. Not going to cry. Dave Shelby mentioned her this morning, and immediately I just thought, prayer warrior. And you know what his story was? He saw Jodine praying. I was like, surprise, surprise. Why? Because she was given to prayer. Why? Because she had charity. She loved people when they deserved not to be loved. And she had a prayer list. She had journals. And my name was written in there. Punk kid with his fingernails all painted and chains around his neck and couldn't see my shoes because my pants were so big and all that stuff. She saw right through it and saw my heart. And here I am. 
one of the pastors of this church, and I'm telling you, it's because of Jodine praying for me. That's one of the reasons, for sure. But I'm telling you, when somebody lives out charity, you don't forget that. It never fails. It never goes away. You remember that for the rest of your life. How about this one, patience. Oh, this one's a big one. Patience. Because immediately you just thought, oh, man, patience. Listen, we just dealt with that in the long-suffering. Sometimes we get this one flipped around. In the Bible, patience and long-suffering, they go hand in hand, but they're not the same things. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. We do what we, we do? You ever read a verse like that and go, we do? <laughs> Apparently we do, because that's what godly living does. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Why? Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience, experience, and experience, hope. You see, when we go through things, it requires us to be patient. What is true patience? Patience is not getting ahead of God. That is true patience. Biblical patience is waiting on God to move before I do. That is biblical patience. And when you go through a hard time and God shows up and you do it through patience, the next time you go through a hard time, you got some experience to lean on. Go, wait a second, I've been in a situation similar to this. I've gone through some hard times like this. I'm gonna, it worked out for me to wait last time. I think I'm gonna do the same thing this time. I'm just gonna wait. And I'm not moving until God does. That's patience. That's a godly life. It's viewing every situation as an opportunity to trust God. That is biblical patience. Or so that deals with, those things deal with my relationship with God. Now these next, these next three deal with the world's relationship with me. Because the next point I have for you is it's persecutions. A godly life should be evident in your persecutions. Now we don't have time to fully unpack this, but when we're reading here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy. But let me take you back to before Paul got saved. His name was Saul, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. It says, and at that time there was a great persecution against the church. I think we have a different idea what persecution really is. Paul is, there's a persecution against the church which is at Jerusalem. Kale, can you go to the next, next slide? It says, next one too, look at verse 3. It says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women and committed them to prison. This is the Apostle Paul who's writing about a godly life, and this was his life. Lashing out at anybody who examined. He gave the example of what a godly life might be. He's, he's arresting them and, and house to house, houses of worship, houses of, houses of prayer, and hailing men and women and committing them to prison. That is beginnings of persecution. Listen, what is persecution? It's when the culture and community is against your presence. That marks the beginning of persecution. It's when there are movements made to hinder you and to be against you. That's when laws get passed. That's when barriers start to be put up. That's persecution. Is when the culture has now set its face against you and made it difficult for you to do what you've been called to do. That's persecution. Because the next word is affliction. Affliction is taken after the persecution. Affliction is to inflict suffering upon your body. See, persecution is, Paul is preaching the gospel in Derby, And they're threatening to stone him. That is, affliction is going to be coming. And so they set themselves against in persecution to make it difficult. So he just leaves and goes to a different town and preaches Jesus. And then the people from another town show up and cause a problem. That's called persecution. And then they stoned him. That's called affliction. You don't get to the affliction without the persecution. And I just read a story yesterday. Karen and I were at the store in Emporium. I'm sitting here because this is what godly people do as their wives are shopping. They check out the news, right? So I'm on my phone checking out the news, and I'm reading about a pastor in Glendale, Arizona, who got shot yesterday for preaching Jesus. They wasn't even really preaching. He was just inviting people to church. And for weeks and weeks and weeks, he's been 
people honking their horns and yelling and, and cursing and, and causing problems, persecution. But yesterday, affliction happened. They tried to take his life. He's still alive. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That doesn't mean always affliction, but it definitely means that people are going to come against you. It, affliction means to inflict suffering upon the body. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 17, from henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my bodies the marks of the Lord Jesus. All right, so the next blank I have for you is endurance. Because he says this in verse 11, persecutions and afflictions which came unto me in Antioch and Iconium at Lystra, what persecutions I endured. A godly life says, I'm not quitting. Persecutions are to be endured. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 3. Let no man, or that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. The expectation of a godly life is persecution and affliction. Let me remind you of Mark chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, the sower and the soils. He's talking about those who receive it quickly. It says, and these are they likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness. Next verse. It says, and having no root in themselves, and so endure for, but for a time. Afterward, when per affliction or persecution rises for the word's sake, immediately they're offended. And I'm telling you, we're coming to a day and age very soon when our culture is going to be done with us. It's coming. They're getting more vocal about it now. And the laws are going to change just like they did with Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. The laws are going to change. It's going to be very difficult for us to do what we do. And unfortunately, a lot of churches are going to go empty. Because many are going to get afflicted. Or sorry, offended by a little bit of affliction. But he says this, but out of them all the Lord delivered me. Out of them all the Lord delivered me. You see, a godly life is not lived alone, is in tandem with others. But a godly life is Jesus Christ living his life through you. That is a godly life. What causes me to endure? He does. What causes me not to be offended? He does. A godly life is him living his life through me. It's the Lord who gets the glory. It's the Lord who does the deliverance. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Give God the glory. And may this be our statement as we leave today. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. What an opportunity. I got to suffer for his name today. When was the last time you even thought that? Because I haven't thought that in a long time. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know what that means? Somebody saw a godly life. And they lashed out. You know what their response was? Somebody saw a godly life. How about that? They lashed out. How about that? I got to suffer shame for his name. Praise the Lord. That sounds great. And that day is coming for every single one of us. Godly life should be evident to every single one of us. And every single one of us is not living a godly life, guaranteed. How do we know that? Because the world hasn't pegged you as one. Because they shall suffer persecution. Let's be careful. The verses we try to apply without making sure that we're qualified to quote it. Me included. Me included. Let's stand together. That was kind of in your face, wasn't it? I didn't mean for it to be in your face. But that's what God gave me. Let's do some business with the Lord. Let's be careful 
what comes out of our mouth. That's our doctrine. Let's be careful about our manner of life, and you know the whole list. Let's be careful that we're not quoting verses out of context. Let's be careful that we're not misusing the Scripture. By the way, it's also not your job, nor is it my job, to tell you who's living a godly life and who's not. That's between you and the Lord. It's going to be fleshed out out there. Because when you start making an impact because of your document of life and your purpose, I'm telling you what, you'll find out real quick. But I'm telling you, most believers are stuck between the two extremes. The world's example or what a godly life is. A worldly life or a godly life. And the majority of us, me included, are stuck in the middle. If any man will, will that be you? Spend some time with the Lord, and I'll close this and we'll be dismissed. Lord, what a convicting passage of Scripture that was for me. Lord, I pray it was eye-opening. I pray that it was, it was also very healing. Lord, I pray that we'll go our separate ways, and Lord, that we'll meditate on these truths and, and seek to apply these truths in our lives and apply our lives to them. Lord, I, I pray that we will not whine and complain about the world that we live in, but understand that we can, we can shine bright against the backdrop of this sinful world. And Lord, may we be able to say one day that we've been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. We ask all this in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.